There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, you guys, this episode of the Pack Filler Podcast brought to you in part by, yep, you guessed it, Man Can. Big brewery in your refrigerator. You go, you take your you take your man can, you order this bad boy. First of all, you gotta go to the website. You gotta click on that man can link and you gotta buy yourself one. Get the little CO2 cartridge that comes with it. Screw all that bad boy together, make it all happy. All right. Take it to your pub, take it to your growler filled place. We actually ha- I have a growler filled place a couple blocks from my house. It's a bad thing for me, but it's a beautiful thing for me in the same breath. You fill it up. You tap it, you you pressurize that bad boy, you put it in your fridge. It's like you have a bar in your own house. What better way to lose all your fitness than by having this beautiful, beautiful beer in your fridge? Actually, it's the recovery drink part of it, right? That's why we drink it. You're right. Man can can make your beer fresh forever. Forever. Thanks to man can. Let's do a podcast, shall we? Man <sighs> Hey, you guys. Welcome to the podcast that actually attacks more than Nairo Quintana. I am Pat Bulger. In the Pack Filler Studios... Well, summer's over, you guys. I know what you're thinking, but Pat, it's it's technically when you're recording this, it's only the first week of August. But no, it's over. You know why? Because the tours come to an end. And I'm experiencing withdrawals. I always get depressed after the tour. I know what you're saying. The tour of Utah's on, Pat. Why aren't you watching that? Your friend, Todd Gogolski, is one of the announcers. You guys, let's be serious. 
And this has nothing to do with Todd. Todd's a great guy. The tour of Utah is about as exciting as Utah. I don't know why. It just doesn't do it for me. Oh, well. Good tour, don't you think? Good tour to France. Don't you think? I thought it was a really good one this year. Things are actually pretty exciting up through those, even up through those final stages. Although, let's be honest, the yellow jersey had been decided in the second week. Yeah, pretty much more or less. Marginal gains seem to work. I just don't want to see people going around riding on their top tubes like, like he did on that downhill stage. The podium was up for grabs right until the end, though. So that's, I guess I could classify that as a good tour. I was excited throughout most of the thing, and nobody got busted. So I guess it was a good tour. Cav, yeah. Mark Cavendish won a buttload. And I'm still on the fence about that in terms of liking him or not. I don't know why. His first wins made me rethink my anger towards him. And I've expressed that on this show many times before in terms of I just don't like him. He mumbles when he talks. He seems smug. He's not really an attacking type of a rider. He, you know, let's be honest, without that full lead out, things just don't seem to work for him. Which, but when that lead out works, it's perfect. Man, that guy can kick. He's got some afterburners. So I found myself kind of switching on him, you know, thinking, okay, you know, he's talking about the cause, what the team's about. Maybe he was prompted to say those things. But, and then, you know, he, he has the bear and he gives it to his kid and the kid's adorable and stuff like that. So it was good. And then as he started to win more, I find myself rooting against him again. And I don't know what to do anymore. You guys, should I like him or should I hate him? I know it makes me think like it's this is almost like a NASCAR mentality. It's like you have your villains and your heroes, isn't it? Speaking of heroes, Peter Sagan. Oh, man, he's my hero again. I was so glad to see him doing his normal antics and doing some of those great things. I'm so excited about Peter Sagan that not only am I going to make sure I am watching the mountain bike race in the Olympics, but I actually went out and bought You've probably seen him online on Facebook. It might be a link if you you know if you're a cycling fan. I hope you are. You're listening to this show. You've probably been on Facebook, and the, and you know how they 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 profile you. They're able to basically read your thoughts, and so they start posting advertisements for you. And then they had these shirts, this cartoony shirt, and I'm, I don't recall the name of the place I bought it from, but a cartoon depiction of of Sagan flipping a wheelie and smiling with his helmet off and the long hair and stuff like that. And and so I look at this tiny little ad on Facebook and I'm going, oh my God, that's awesome. My son and I are both big fans of Peter's, so I buy two copies of these shirts. I Yes, thing one and thing two, my son and I are matching. We have these shirts. They come in the mail. I'm so excited. I think it's funny. I think only certain people are going to get it and the cool people who get it are the cool people. And I look at the shirt and have you guys ever gone to the fair or a circus or, a, you know, some kind of farmer's market or something like that where they have the guy who does those characters of people. You sit there and he cranks them out. This is kind of like that, but full color. And I'm not going to, yeah, I, I guess I might be bashing a little bit on the, on the artist there, but online on the tiny little link, it looks really cute. It looks funny. When it comes <laughs> the guy, the, there's just enough stubble on Peter's face and and they made his nose kind of reddish and stuff like that he looks like a wheeling pedophile to be honest <laughs> so I can just imagine 
the people who don't know who that is on my shirt when I'm walking around, let alone matching with my son, and we're all kind of smiling from ear to ear with this really kind of creepy looking homeless person on our shirt. So <laughs> I love the shirts. They, you know, I don't know if I should have spent 25 bucks a piece on them, but um, <laughs> they're, they're awesome. They're kind of scary in person, but there, there you go. So, <laughs> oh, so you guys have been about three weeks. I usually take the tour off from the podcast mainly because cyclists, you guys don't, I mean, the numbers always seem to dip during the tour because everybody's watching the tour and or in the podcast you're downloading and listening to tend to be more uh, the facts and figures and related to the tour and things like that. And so I usually kind of take my time off and everybody else in the business now that I've switched to this interview format is is pretty much doing something related to the race unavailable for the interview. And I used to do that rest day thing. Speaking of go-go, we did that a couple of years ago, and that was great to have somebody with that great insight. I'm I'm sitting watching it every morning, having my coffee, and and that's about as far into it as I want to go. I don't like to rehash all that stuff. So so I usually take a, a few weeks off at that point in time, and now here we are. We're back, and uh, and we got a good show for you here. But um, before I get to that, you guys, I know that you guys are fast-forwarding through all this anyway, so... I, I leave for Leadville in three days. I've been talking about this since uh, since January, right? When I found out I, quote, won, unquote, the lottery to get in. Been through highs and lows in the training. Had some injuries to recover from and all those types of things. Um, and now it's real. It always was this thing out on the distance. And I know for those of you who've done this, who've trained for an event or or a big a big thing to really peak for, um, it always seems so far away. And now that it's here, um, I'm scared shitless. There's been a couple times. I think what it was was I, I downloaded the, the race Bible uh, for Leadville and printed it off. And at the same time, the website has the course online and you can look at the course and I had a minor minor panic attack and I've been getting them now at night I've been waking up in the middle of the night going shit oh my god am I ready and to make matters worse I had a horrid distance ride last week if you don't mind, I'm going to recap a little bit of the highlights. It's a 100-mile ride that we have around here. I've done it earlier in the year. I did it on my on my cross bike because about 80% of it's gravel roads. Really good good test. It's it's a lot of steep climbs, multiple climbs, like I think about six 7,000 feet of climbing. So it's a good ride. And uh, I did it on the cross bike, finished it earlier in the year, felt really good. And so I thought, you know, I should try it this time on my mountain bike to see what it's like for uh to do that kind of finally do the mileage on that one bike and um it was hot it was our first day here in the 90s and the the weather report i looked at said that the, it wasn't going to get higher than like 87 88 it didn't. It got it got way hotter than that. It was like 94, 95. And I know that you guys living in Arizona are going, fuck you, that's no problem. I use that all the time. Well, you live in Arizona. It's punishment alone. 
and um and i uh i didn't do it right you guys i didn't fuel right i uh i took two water bottles um both with uh what's that shit noon in it with the extra stuff the extra carbo the plus in it which i realized wasn't enough carbs for the type of thing i'm going to i'm going to be trying for and i took a camelback even though i hate those things but I took a camelback full of water because there's not a whole lot of places for me to stop for water. Um, and I took some gels. Little did I know that these gels were so old that I squirted one into my mouth and it actually had chunks in it. And so <laughs> I had to spit that out. And all, so basically all I had with me was uh, two Cliff Bars and, and the stuff I was drinking. And um, it didn't go well. And, and the heat was not good. And I got about 70 miles into it. And my wife texted me to see how I was doing. She was at work. And I had stopped at the one gas station that's open on this route. It's really, really rural. And um, I texted her back and I said, I'm not doing well. I said, I'm, I'm taking the shortest way home from here. I'm cutting out the last 25 miles. Um, I'll let you know how I do. And so I stopped at this gas station. I grabbed myself a Coke, which was not a good idea. All that sugar. I grabbed myself a Gatorade, which is even more sugar. And um, and it just, it, it went downhill fast from there. I was sitting on a parking stop and I just felt myself going. And I, I texted my wife back and I said, can you please come get me? I am, I'm about 25 miles out of town, maybe 20 miles out of town. The way I was going to go back was kind of a roundabout way to get there. And I said, I'm going to just start pedaling home on the, along the side of the highway. And when you see me, come get me. She was cool enough to actually leave work, get in the car, head towards, head towards where I was. And I got on the highway again and started pedaling. And my thigh started cramping. And, you know, it's just, I got to the point where my thigh locked up and I had to actually stop. Which tells me something. In 25 years of competitive cycling and coaching, you'd think I would know how to fuel myself. I guess I need to start getting a little bit more anal about how I'm going to pull this off. You know, if you do the math and if I were to share my weight with you over a podcast, you would know that I need about 300 to 400 calories per hour, plus water, plus electrolytes, solid food, excuse me I sneezed but I did it off mic I don't edit these things in case you wondered we keep it real so anyway three to four hundred calories plus compensating for the heat and water and all that kind of stuff you know how much of a pain in the ass it is to actually be prepared so I'm going to have to do it you know, I actually, I actually am, I speak, I, I do what I talk of and I actually went to the feed and I signed myself up and I am ordering things from them and I'm getting very specific things where I can fill and have a proper amount of liquid calories, not to mention solid foods. And I'm making out a plan for, God, I'm feeling like one of the, no offense to the triathletes, but some of those triathletes get, take things so seriously. You know, you're in a sprint triathlon and you're planning out your, your nutrition, but maybe I need to take a page out of that book and actually be prepared a little bit more. I'm planning out a map of what bottles I need. Okay. I'm going to start with this. 
I'm going to get to this checkpoint. I'm going to I'm going to take this and this on. I'm going to eat this. I'm going to consume this. I'm going to have to make sure I drink this or eat this by the next rest stop. All that kind of stuff, and I'm going to I have to do it, or I'm I'm not going to make it. So another thing to make me nervous about this race. Here I've been I've been cycling competitively since the early '80s, and here I am freaking out over one 100 mile ride. So my son and I are driving down to Colorado, starting on Saturday with a stop in Montana to see my folks. They they live in a town with higher altitudes, so I can get a day or two there. I can do some riding there around 8,000 feet, kind of slowly start to get things ready. And then a full day drive down to Leadville. I have no idea what to expect, you guys. Everyone I'm talking to is offering up advice. So I guess I do have what to expect, but everybody's advice is just starting to freak me out even more. I bumped into a guy in the grocery store, a friend of mine the other day, who said, dude, you got to call me. We got to talk about hydration. We got to talk about uh, what type of food you're going to need. We got to talk about your pacing. And I just got even nervous again. I got shallow breath. I got freaking out. So... I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I guess I should just say fuck it and go ride my bike. Right, Bender? Bender the dog is here. He's He's got his head on my knee. He's saying, you're going to be all right, you old man. Am I going to be all right, bud? Hmm? I hope so. Worst case scenario, I just go for a ride, right? I will let you guys know how it goes. I will. I'll do some sort of a post or or at least some sort of a great recap show when we get back. Worst case scenario, I can stop off at Floyd's of Leadville, right? You know what I'm talking about. <coughs> that kind of stuff, right? All right, enough about me. Keith Montrager's on the show today, you guys. Um uh, another one of those legends that I'm just honored to get to, to have the opportunity to talk to guy who thinks outside the box and, um, and really, really a cool guy. So, uh, I'm going to shut up Keith Bontrager on the pack filler podcast. Okay, everybody today's guest, very likely to blame for several items in your cycling equipment possession list, as well as your dreams of items to buy. Let's be honest since his beginnings working out, of a garage to today's standards for quality and excellence. He's been a tinker, an innovator, and a pioneer behind multiple aspects of the sport of cycling. Let's look, welcome to the show, Keith Bontrager. How are you, man? Um, good. I'm good. Good. Hey, hey, first of all, before we get going, how happy are you to have uh, your components first across the line at San Sebastian this past weekend? Okay, Molina. <laughs> That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I figured. I, I remember seeing some things on your Facebook page a little recently, just talking about you know how nice it was to to see those things happening. I'm sure it's you know it, it's got to have some kind of pride involved. Well, I mean, you know, it, yeah, the stuff worked <laughs> well for him, but the, this is about the people involved, and he he deserved one. He needed a win. Yeah, yeah. Hey, what kind of contact or input do you do you have with the team? Is there is there a constant flow of information going back and forth? I'm, I wouldn't say it's constant. I am involved in some cases where there's um, sort of theoretical stuff um, to be determined. You know, I'm I'm a resource. 
Okay. And so um, when it comes to tires or, you know, the way frames work or this is and that, I've, I've been called upon to, to give my two cents. But beyond that, I'm a fan and, um, you know, that, that's about it. Did you at least get to go to any of these races? Were you at the tour or anything like that? You know, I'm the worst type of fan in that regard. <laughs> I've been to a lot of, of stages in the Tour de France um, and spring classics. Those are my favorite. But the I'd, I'd rather ride my bike than to just hang out somewhere. Yeah. And and so I I don't mind watching it on the TV. And and the last thing I'd ever want to do is be caught in a VIP area. That that's just like <laughs> and I don't know. Anyway, so I'm I'm probably a fan like most people, and I just want to see what's going on in the race. Okay. Okay. You know, I I have to probably mention that I'm sure um, looks like Sky could have used some of your componentry, especially going up the Vontu. <laughs> well, that you know, every everything these guys are racing are racing right now is um, Formula One, and yeah. they are really good when they're rolling along and being pedaled. But the instant anything weird happens, I'd say all bets are off. So I'm I'm not sure that what happened to Chris's bike wouldn't have happened to anybody else's bike in that bike race. Well, you know, maybe some sort of a of a cycling shoe conversion that switches. You know, you hit a button and a running sole appears in the bottom of it or something. Like that. Maybe. <laughs> well, maybe you know, there's that. always cyclocross. I, yeah. I, that just a matter of putting on a different pair of shoes. You never, you know. Yeah, you never know. Hey, let's step back a bit. Um, did, first of all, did you ever think that um, building bikes in a garage would ever lead to something like this? This kind of, uh, you know, where you sit in the in the hierarchy of of the cycling world right now. No, I mean, that would be like, no, absolutely not. Not even close. How did you, how did you get involved in this entire business? First of all, in cycling as a whole, I know it started with, uh, with motocross background and then you came over to manpowered. Right. Now, was there a specific process that got you involved in that? What, what prompted that change? Um, life. Uh, the, the weird thing is pretty much everything I did from the time I was 12 years old, kind of prepared me for all of this without any real clear plan for how it would, it would play out. But, you know, inventing, inventing things, which at 12 years old means finding a bunch of weird things and kind of hacking them together with, you know, out any real clue about what you're trying to do to mini bikes and motorcycles where I kind of got the feeling for how cool it was to be able to work on things and maintain them and change them and control your own mechanical destiny to mountain bikes, which was, and road bikes and track bikes and the rest was, was just kind of a progression of, of figuring out how to do stuff and being too cheap to buy it sometimes when you, when you, you know, when you wanted to do, do something. I, I can only imagine the rain your parents had to have given you. If you're, you're 12 years old and you're building, um, mini bikes out of lawnmower parts or something like that, you know, did they just kind of just whatever, just, just keep quiet and play in the backyard my, my mother was um a very sort of timid person and she wouldn't allow me to ride a bicycle because she was convinced that i would get squished by a car oh and but somehow the idea of riding motorcycles off-road and building my own mini bikes in the garage somehow snuck past that screen radar screen of hers and my dad sold um worked for a Kohler company and sold electric engine generators and lawn mowing, lawn mowing equipment. 
And he came back with a bunch of old clapped out engines and a new crankshaft and said, here, have at it. So <laughs> it was it was just one of those things where I'm not sure they really knew where it was going to go or how it, how badly it could out of control it could get. But we're um, just kind of willing to let it go and see what happened. Now, was there any formal experience involved in, especially when it comes to, you know, to brazing and welding and things like that? Um, you know, I, I went to the class. I took a course on frame building and all that wonderful stuff. Did you just kind of jump right into this and figure it out, or was there some sort of a mentorship with somebody involved? Well, um, for the most part, I, I learned everything or almost everything I needed to know on motorcycles okay so so i built chassis components on motorcycles not professionally but for my own um, purposes and i learned to weld in high school back in the days when there were shop classes yeah oh god and yeah. you know i would cut class you know cut english class and go to the shop class to weld something you know just because that's where i really like to hang out the teacher was an old friend of my father's and he used to give me a lot of shit about um what I did, you know, how it didn't come out right. So I was kind of challenged to get it right. Um, and that, you know, it was, it's funny, but it, that's just part of the sort of weird story. It, it all worked in towards in a, in the direction that it's gone without actually in planning it out or intending it to go that way. Was there a moment that it became, I'm just doing this kind of for fun to I'm doing this. This is a job. This is my uh, uh, official company, I guess I could ask. Um, in in my mind, no. Really? I, I guess at some point you realize, okay, well, I'm going to have to get serious about this. This is a business. Um, but even up to the point where, you know, mid-94, we had a bunch of um, employees. Th then it started to become a business yeah. because then there was the burden of payroll and, you know, how are we going to make ends meet? But we never we never borrowed money. We'd, I always kind of avoided the things that would be the real hands around your throat pressure <laughs> and and that always meant that it could be kind of fun you could walk away if things got really horrible and you wouldn't end up with your you know in, in a, a lot of debt and so, so we kind of managed that over the over the years now where was your experience entering from because your first frame was, that you built was for yourself correct it was a road bike yeah and yeah. and where did off-road come into the picture that was the second bike I made. It was second bike. You were right, right yeah. out of the gate. Okay. And that was for you? Yeah. Okay. And and was it was it for a racing purpose? Was it uh, kind of, you know, just riding there, the trails there, around? There was no racing yeah. in those days. I'd gotten off motorcycles. I hadn't completely stopped riding motorcycles. But I knew that the end was was coming on that because they'd I'd seen people get hurt. I'd yeah. kind of burn out. I'd hurt myself a bunch of times badly. Um, they were getting really expensive. Where I lived in, in California, it was really hard to find a place to ride because the clamp had come down on all the off-road stuff. And and I'd seen a bike that had fat tires at a at a local criterium, and, and I'd been kind of wandering along those lines myself and thought, okay, well, I just got to do something. So I just made a bike and took off from there. And just kind of winged it, just based off what you saw, just kind of assuming and thinking about what would work and things along those lines. What was your supply chain like? I mean, where did you build it from? The supply chain was yeah. to go to Specialized Bicycle, which was just a tiny little warehouse in um, Campbell, California. Okay. 
and dig around on the shelves. And they had some Columbus tubing. And I knew people who were able to supply 4130 thin wall tubing. Because I'd worked on motocross motorcycles for so long, I had all the the industrial connections, you know. So that, that part made it easy. It was just a matter of getting the idea and then grabbing some stuff and going. Nobody questioned you. You just, what are you doing, man? Oh, well, just they, everybody questioned me, but they, you know, they, I'd, I'd done enough shady stuff by then that it's like, you know, no, nobody was too surprised by it. So, and then going from there, your bikes became really synonymous with with strength um, and the ability to handle what mountain biking was becoming. Um, what what set you apart? What what prompted that? And why? I guess why wasn't why weren't other people thinking about that? But I was really lucky because. I didn't, I didn't start in Marin County, so I didn't really have any of the influence yeah. from, from that, that side. And in Santa Cruz, where I'd gone to, to go to school at UCSC, I um, was lucky enough to, to know all these guys at bike shops who were um, national-level cross racers and really hardcore roadies. And they, once they got on mountain bikes, they just broke them. You know, that yeah. like all the stuff that they had, including some of the stuff braised together from up north, just didn't hold up to, to the pounding. And they, it wasn't hard to understand why. You know, it was like, it, it wasn't magic. Here's the engineering. Here's the material science. Here's the, the you know, um, stress analysis. Yeah. This is what's happening. This is what you should do to fix it. And I made replacement frames for those guys. And that was like a pretty good trial by fire because they would chew through, you know, two or three bikes a year easily and I could build something for them that didn't break. And that was like, okay, that works. Was there a, were you able to create strength while maintaining lightweight? Was there a, what was that even a priority at that point in time? Well, it initially it wasn't, you know, the, the first forks that I made that didn't bend, um, was they were like, they look like a, a rock shock fork without the suspension bits yeah. on the bottom. Um, those were a good bit heavier than the Unicrown forks. And I knew they would be, I tried to keep the weight out of them, but, but the, the principle was simple. If you ride with Unicrown forks and you pound the bike, they're going to bend. So you're not going to ride or you're going to replace forks all the time. And adding a quarter pound to the fork meant that you didn't have to worry about that. And so, okay, that's all right. That's worthwhile. Yeah, what would you rather deal with, walking home or or that extra, you know, water bottle weight on your bike? Right. Yeah. Right. And it, from it, it's weird because in in developing bike parts, I still face this. There's weight is such a crucial part of what goes into the calculation from most people's point of view yeah. about whether a part is good or not. And and weight from a physicist's point of view has influence on the performance of a bike. But it's only one of a lot of things that actually influences the bottom line performance of a bike. And I, I saw that pretty clearly. I've, I mean, I've learned, thought about those things for decades now, and I, I can understand it pretty well. But, but there are times when having a part that weighs a little bit more isn't such a bad thing. When, when it brings performance to, to the bike that is something different than just simple weight. Well, well, and- um, and we're starting to see, uh, especially, you know, in races like the Tour, um, we're seeing a lot more breakage in those types of things where we're getting to that point where is lightweight becoming so obsessive that we're sacrificing strength? 
Well, we are, and, and there's no question about it. Now, having said that, it's back to the Formula One comment. Yeah. The, the bikes that we're making, and I'm not saying this sort of without detailed knowledge of all the other brands, but the bikes that, that are being ridden in the Tour are very up to the rigors of bike racing when it comes to rolling and cornering and stopping and pedaling and all the things that would happen when a guy's riding on them. But when you put them into certain circumstances like crashing, they don't hold up very well. And in the same way that a, a Formula One car sort of frags when, yeah. when it hits something, a bike is going to do the same sort of thing. Now, whether or not that's unsafe, I, I'd say it, it's, it's probably not because even the older steel bikes and with aluminum rims, once you crash them hard, they weren't really rideable. It wasn't safe to ride them. You know, maybe they would roll, but they would wobble. It, it wasn't. The difference is, is that in one case, the bike breaks apart, and in the other case, the bike stays together. But in both cases, they're done. You know, that's, that's the end of it. Wait, what? I thought, it, what is cold setting? Isn't that what we always did? You just take <laughs> it home and slam it up against a curb or what, something like that? It, if you want the material science consequences of cold setting, I'd be happy to rattle that <laughs> off. You probably don't want that. But, but that doesn't make the bike rideable again. That just makes it sort of aligned. Oh, well, crap. I guess Sorry. I, I should have I thrown several bikes away in the late 80s and 90s. You definitely should have. And you should consider that if you buy one of those beautiful vintage bikes um you want to look really carefully over that thing because it's probably not that safe i had a coach drive our team bus under a, a parking garage and with all the bikes on top and oh he, he, he spent that night bending forks back and we raced you know that next day and i think for years afterwards on those bikes uh okay i'm not gonna say anything more about that <laughs> yeah i'm lucky i'm alive right Yes. Yeah. So you didn't stop with with frames. Wheels, stems also became a big part of the company. And and what prompted that development into those areas? Well, if you, I don't know if you were involved with motorcycle. How old are you, first of all? Oh God, I'm in, I'm 47. Okay. Well, you're old enough. Yeah. Old enough. The in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, motocross first came across the pond to the U.S. Okay. And from from sort of mid 70s on there was this really interesting thing that, that went on where the Europeans made these, what at the time were state-of-the-art motocross machines that were heavy, fairly reliable, if you knew the magical incantations required to keep them going. Um, but they were, they were just traditional, and people rode them. And they weren't really modified. They, weren't, you know, they were just maintained and raced. The Japanese got involved, and they made very powerful but not very good handling, often not very durable machines. And they, they're, it, a, a sort of low-level space race started. The Europeans didn't know it was coming. The Japanese kind of did. And slowly but surely, the Japanese motorcycles got better. The European motorcycles were outdated. They were still powerful. They still handled well, but they were heavy and clunky. And, and so an aftermarket business started for components to modify the european motorcycles to make them lighter more durable in crashes and whatnot yeah and i was around in the motorcycle business during that time i worked for motocross fox and fox was that's how he started he made replacement shocks for japanese motorcycles okay and, and european motorcycles and he made and distributed widgets you know plastic fenders plastic gas tanks ways to take weight out of um motorcycles 
and and so I learned how that worked in the process of of working for him and helping develop those things. And when it came around to to mountain bikes, the same thing applied. You know, we we started building these frames, but we were putting European touring stuff. Yeah. And later, some some sort of clunky Japanese parts made for mountain bikes onto them, and they worked. You know, it's okay. But there was lots to do. And, and so this idea of, okay, well. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. At the time, European motorcycles or bicycles were, you buy the bike and it's built with a group and you choose your wheels and tires and away you go. Yeah. And so there was this kind of you could bolt things together approach to bicycles that worked. And so it was just a matter of combining the idea of making things for specific purposes, components, and then starting with a frame and just assembling it from there. And if you imagine you remember what early mountain bikes were, that's oh, yeah. what people did. You, you buy a frame and then you just go shopping for all the little widgets you need to throw it together. And what I was doing fit in really well with that with that approach. And and the wheel the the story behind the wheels themselves has a a very interesting origin in terms of looking at something and say you know trying to figure out what type of a design involved was that. Well, again, scoring from I had a friend of mine who had a great bike shop, um, George Slough in San Jose, and he 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 worked out of his house. He was he was he really was despised by all the other bike shops, but he he was a racer. And he, he, there was like a little trail through his house between all the boxes of stuff. And I, I would go over there and I would, you know, save my pennies and I would buy the things I needed for my bikes and I would talk to him and he was, he was really practical and he would keep used parts around and he would get used parts from here and there. And he found a bunch of rims in the specialized dumpster that had been returned or had been, were defects or whatever. And he sold them to me for a dollar a piece. Oh God. And and then, of course, to cut the middleman out. After that, I went straight to the dumpster instead of uh, you know, <laughs> going by his place. And 
and I had them laying around in my house and that those were the rims that I used for most of my bikes because I was too poor to buy, you know, good wheels. And the one day it occurred to me that, that one of those wheels with chunks cut out and bent back down into a slightly smaller radius would work for a um, mountain bike tire. And it did. I made one, you know, that day. Wow. It, first of all, any, a guy with a bike shop in his house, that's not a guy with a bike shop in his house. That's a hoarder. And, and I know ex- I'm, I'm looking Actually, around. That's a pretty good description of yeah. the circumstances. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking around my immediate area right now and I think I could probably classify as something along those lines, but, um, but my God, what kind of, you have a, a degree in physics, correct? I don't have a degree. I studied physics, okay. but I came up short a couple classes and just decided to carry on without the degree. Yeah. Things seem to have worked out, right? Well, they've worked out pretty well. I, I used to ride with one of my ex-professors and he said, you know, you should, I had to, I had more than enough physics classes, um, but he, I needed a, a breadth requirement, a sociology class or something. And oh yeah. He said, you, you should do that someday. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And now it's, <laughs> it's been a while and I haven't got to it. But, but to have this manufacturing I guess, confidence in looking at something going, you know, I'm going to cut a chunk out of that rim. I'm going to refuse it back together and I'm going to go out and bash around on it and see if it works. Um, a lot of us might have those kind of interesting ideas, but really fail on the follow through. Um, you know, where did, I guess, did manufacturing, did this just kind of, like I said, it must've approached and, and how did you get that confidence and the ability to think about these things? You know, that's an interesting topic and we could spend the next two hours talking about that, but the lots of people have ideas and I had crazy ideas from a very early age about, you know, what would be really cool. And somehow through a, a sort of sequence of successes and failures that you don't take too seriously and you learn from, yeah. you, you overcome the fear of failure to the point and, and, and combining that with kind of a, a decent understanding of how the world works, physics, when just sort of cutting and trying stuff, you, you can incrementally get to the point where you're not only afraid to try stuff or, and you're not only afraid to try stuff, but you've got enough background and understanding of what it is that you need to do to get it done. And, and in, in the right circumstances, that lack of fear and the know-how can mean that you really can make things, whether it's dinner or, <laughs> you know, uh, a, a bicycle part or whatever. And, and the people that I know that have, have got that by whatever reason, um, can can do things successfully that other people just kind of are in awe of and it's it's a process that's really hard to control but when once you've done it and once you've got it you've got it and it's just a matter of pointing it in the right direction god you know and i don't know if it's the fear of failure if it's the fear of uh, litigation that uh, that you know you run into and things like that but it's just it seemed to have some people tend to just make those things happen like you're saying there's well, avoiding litigation is simple. Just be poor. If, if you're poor, no lawyer will yeah. give you the you know second look. And and for right up until Trek bought my company, I definitely qualified as the. There's nobody that's going to come after you. You know, I I yeah. never tried to do anything. I tried always to avoid doing anything that would hurt somebody. 
but the, we weren't a target. So that part was easy. What I always tell people that is like nothing from nothing is still nothing. So you right. know, what, what the hell are you going to take from me? You mentioned the, uh, the partnership with Trek. What, what prompted that growth? You built a, a pretty substantial entity for quite a while there. Um, the, you know, with the race light frames and all those types of things, building full bikes, wheels and things like that. And then, um, jumped in with Trek. What, what brought that about? Um, 80 hours a week yeah. <laughs> earning no money. The, yeah. The, the thing about bike, the bike business is it's easy to get into. The cost of entry is pretty low. Lots of people have the craft and the skills and the whatever to, to get it started. But working out how to actually make a living at it, not a killing, not getting rich, yeah. but just finding a way to pay your bills and make sure you're not starving and you know, you've got a place to live. That's a pretty major accomplishment. And frankly, I don't have business skills. I have more now than I had back then, but I still would never, ever claim that I understand the way businesses work. Um, and at the time, we'd, we'd grown the business. I'd taken on a partner. We'd grown the business to a certain size. It was big enough to be encouraging and also dangerous. Um, you know, there was a lot of money flowing around and we didn't really have any, okay. we didn't borrow any. So, you know, cash flow was a really important thing to worry about. Um, we had 20 plus employees. We were not taking a, a paycheck half the year because we couldn't afford to pay everybody and also pay ourselves. Wow. I was making less money then than I was make than I'd made when I was 18 years old, you know, working as a, in a fence company. It was, yeah. And then, and then he left. And, and so I was then running the company rather than doing any technical work. And it wasn't a really great time to be doing that. And Trek called and said, we'd like you to design some parts for us. And I said, well, tell you what, you know, how would you like to invest in, in this company, you know, and become part owner in the company? And they said, well, we don't really do that. Why don't we just buy the company? <laughs> And that was like, okay. okay. <laughs> and, and at the time it wasn't, I mean, we had, we developed a brand we had some products, but really what they wanted was the brand and the reputation. And they wanted me to design things for them. Wow. And they wanted to sell uh, the Bontrager bikes made in Santa Cruz. They invested nearly a million dollars in a, a factory that was in the same mushroom cannery that we were in. That was like by our standards, completely state of the art. It was, you know, it it wasn't. There was no robot in the place, but yeah. it was a way to make handmade frames that was better than anything we'd ever imagined. Um, and so they came into it with sort of all these different things in play, and it seemed like at the time a really good idea. It not all of it's worked out, but I think at the time it was definitely a good idea. We talk about being able to pull back the curtain and and have you mentioned you know while the company is you're before track while you, everybody's thinking oh my god you know everything's going well he must be making so much money and all those types of things and you're saying <laughs> yeah no and you're saying I'm not even taking a paycheck for God's sakes you know I, I I can barely afford ramen and and you know for us to hear that and then to also hear that it's like one day oh hey how are you track yeah okay sure let's just do this and just the simplicity of that yeah i for, for this for us on the outside that's not something that we consider that's not something that it's it's that easy and that it's that simple to make happen 
it, it was it was very lucky, very timely, and in the end, I think it worked out really well. Yeah. And, you know, it, we took a, a good shot at a lot of it. Some of it didn't work out. Some of it did. Yeah. So how would you describe what you do currently at Trek? Do you have a job description, or is it just kind of like, I'm doing this today? We've, we've been trying for 10 years to work out, or <laughs> uh, 20 years, actually, to work out what my job description is. So I love it. And I'm not really any further along on that than I was um, a while back. The, I've um, lately, I've, I've been distracted um, <laughs> to some extent. I'm, um, the reasons I'm in London are not due to business. Okay. But the, um, I've been working a lot on tires and rims. Um, I, I do some, I've, I've been doing a lot of sort of the theoretical counseling that it takes to get to the next product cycle. Um, and then the background that we need to do what, what the actual product designers need to do. Um, so I've been working a lot on, um, the um, contact patch of tires and how tires suspend a bicycle above the ground and how what the, the forces are on a bicycle tire and wheel when it's going around the corner or over a bump. Um, wow. And again, we could talk a lot about that, but you probably don't want to. Well, um, and then um, doing some PR, some speaking engagements, um, that kind of thing. Well, obviously, this this partnership, like you said, there's been highs and there's lows, but everything seems to have gone pretty well. I myself have multiple items with your name on it. Uh, do you have direct input on everything that goes out with your name on? I mean, the gloves, helmets. Uh, no, I, no, I, no. Okay. The the last thing, anybody who knows me, I mean, I haven't bought a pair of new. I've bought a new item of clothing in a in a shop for fifteen years. <laughs> I, I go to thrift shops, and. <laughs> It is, and if anybody had seen my wardrobe, they would know definitely that I am not the person to be involved with clothing. <laughs> okay. I, I actually, that having said that, I do comment on shoes and shorts. Okay. From the point of view of interface and some of the me- mechanisms involved. Okay. And so when I, I mean, I, I, I race. My last race was in last September, but I've, I've raced all these years and put in a lot of uh, feedback from the point of view of, you know, what it's like to race in a eight day long stage race with shorts or shoes or helmet or whatever. So I do have input in that regard. Speaking of input, do you deal directly with anybody on on any of the the teams that are involved? Do you get input from the riders there or do you have that kind of a relationship? Um, I've done some of that. It depends on what I'm working on. Yeah. For the most part, I leave that to the normal channels. But if, like, I worked on downhill tires and wheels last year, and I met with the team guys, um, talked to the mechanics. Okay. You know, feedback from from the front lines is is really important in some cases, and not very important in others. And most of what I do is the latter. Really? Okay. So if if you've got enough theory going, when you get a little word from when you get the word from the the front lines. You understand exactly what they're saying and why, and then you make the changes you need. And it doesn't require a long discussion or, or in-depth testing. Okay. And well, and it's not like they're going to have any huge amount of input other than like, yeah, it worked or, well, I it, broke it, it. But yeah. Race, race teams are really conservative. Yeah. It, it, we don't, the testing that we do is mostly done with people other than the race teams or occasionally, yeah. especially with road or downhill with racers, but not in a circumstance that involves racing. Yeah, they the, want they want to make sure that they're gonna everything's gonna hold solid. Exactly, they yeah. need to get across the finish line, yeah. and and you're not pushing them into circumstances where they're gonna take a risk mechanically with anything to do that. And and 
you have, there, there's rider safety involved as well. Yeah. So you're, 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 when they actually get something, it's pretty well sorted out. You, you don't have any real question about how it's going to work. This you just no, want their, their feedback from the point of view of how does, how do you feel about this? Yeah. This is no prototype of an end of a situation here. No, no, no. So cycling itself and the end, not only the industry, but the sport have obviously come a long way since you started me. I mean, when you started, there was no mountain biking and now we look at what it is now. Um, yes. roads obviously grown insanely. Are you happy with how everything has come out or are there any areas that you wish would have been different in both the industry and the sport as a whole? <sighs> With, yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm, right, next I'm question. I'm not happy. <laughs> that um, when, uh, well, first there are two parts of it. Okay. One, we work in a fashion business. Yeah. And fashion is mindless. Yeah. It, I mean, or fashion is 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 appealing to to people's sort of basic instincts and desires and 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 that's cool i I get that but it also changes constantly and has to change constantly and and there are times when we trash a good design a component that's working really well to replace it with something only because it needs to be replaced not not because it's not good but yeah. just because it needs to be freshened up in order to sell something okay. again. And that drives me nuts. And, you know, it's like, why would you do that? This thing is just as good as it was before. It's still best in class. Whatever we do to it is probably going to make it worse, you know. And, and yeah. why do we need to do that? It doesn't happen very often, but occasionally it does. Um, so, so that part of it kind of drives me crazy. Um, but, but we work with it, you know, it's, it's, and then you fight. Okay. It's all right. We got to make it look different, but it's got to work as good or better go. You know, yeah. how do you, how do you make that work? Yeah. And the money in racing is in my experience, um, screwing it up. The, the pros should get paid. That's fine. But the, it's the same as in any professional sports. There's a point where it becomes so much about money that the sport kind of becomes dependent on the profitability of the thing and the TV contracts and all the rest of it, you know, motorcycles running down riders. Yeah. That's because there's so much money on the line with all the cameras and journalists and and whatnot that they put rider safety behind the bottom line. That that's crazy. The, I don't know. I, yeah. I don't want to get no, I I, off I, on that too long. No, I, but, I, but there's a point where the money involved becomes so so important and so much the goal that the actual sport itself gets gets left behind a little bit. Okay, okay, and and well, and on your first point, I I agree with you. You know that that I guess I could relate it to almost like. Um, computer apple or something like that you know it's like okay the new ipad iphone comes out this one's blue you know oh god i gotta have the blue one now or something like that even though it's more or less the same device there's nothing huge changing involved in there um you know i remember you know now it's like okay i've got a great stem but now we've got to change the graphic on it and all of a sudden it's different um and we all fall victim to that i i don't know about you but i fall victim to that i'm like holy crap the the logo is different i I gotta get it you know or something like that and how how stupid is that when my current 
shifters or stem or whatever working just fine. Um, when you talk about the money involved in the sport, um, I, I guess, you know, wouldn't that, wouldn't you say that's a fine line to walk because the money involved gets, c- continues to grow the sport or does that high end part even affect uh, little Johnny becoming a bike rider and going out and hitting the trails or something like that? Well, I, it does. Yeah. And growing the sport is fine with me, but growing the sport by trying to make it explode. I mean, yeah. there's, there's, there's a healthy rate of growth of anything that will sustain it, that will allow it to be in control, that will allow rational decisions to be made about which direction it should go and how to get it there. And that's fine. Yeah. That once the money part of it becomes too big, then the, the rational part of it starts getting left behind. And that, I think, is where the, the problem lies. The mountain bike racing, when it first took off, cross-country racing. Absolutely, yeah. Grew way too fast. And, and it was great because it pulled a lot of people into to riding mountain bikes. But the, the whole pro World Cup scene was just a huge shit show. And it, it didn't really do very many people any. It didn't, didn't do the sport much good to have it be so out of control. Now, the, 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 the emphasis on cross country is completely done and they're just struggling to survive. Cross country racing. I love, I, I wasn't ever really that good at it. I I had my successes. I had my failures, but mostly the latter, but I loved (laughs) it. And you know, I I wasn't a great climber, but I love going uphill. But all of that stuff is just history. Now you, you were like, old school if you even think about you know talking about cross-country racing we don't we stopped developing cross-country race parts you know that occasionally one will sneak through but it's like that doesn't really matter there's no market in it well i couldn't agree more i've talked to especially riders that i looked up to and and followed from the day i've talked to ned over and i've talked to tinker yeah um allison dunlap and things like that and they all agree that they talk about the concept of cross-country racing and how it has it's not what it was it you wouldn't go out and we wouldn't see you for you know an hour and a half you'd you'd go out and do a one-lap course or even a a three time a three-lap course it's almost become some sort of a cross between cyclocross and an off-road crit, it seems right. like, with obstacles and things like that growing. Um, and then I'll, I'll talk to people in road, and especially domestic road cycling, where we're looking at the sport going, the numbers are down, area races are uh, registrations down, um, but fondos are going through the roof. Um, mm-hmm. Is that something that, that you, as a, as a cyclist, as a pioneer, uh, see as, as necessarily something that is, is immediate and, and we need to change or is it, we have to f- go where the enthusiasm goes? Uh, you know, the, we used to call them, uh, centuries. Yeah. Yeah. Grand Fondos have been around forever. And yeah. you know, the fact that they're as popular as they are now, good, that that's fine. The, the idea of going out and, and doing a ride with, 10,000 of your closest friends doesn't really have much appeal to me, but I can understand why, why people would do it. And, you know, that's, that's fine. I've done a few in Europe that were, you know, weird and, um, kind of fun, but not the sort, I mean, I would go out and ride the same course the week after, you know, and, and not have to deal with 10,000 other people. Yeah. But, um, that's fine. And, and, you know, influencing the sport to get people participating in events like that, that's great. Um, it's a small part of what cycling is about, 
but that's it's a positive thing. Um, I'm not I'm not coming down on any of that stuff yeah. in a in a bad way. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, wind down here, but, but just like any, you know, a good band that gets big, you know, I remember seeing, uh, for example, I remember going and seeing Green Day in a tiny little fairground building and, and watching the band and going, God, these guys are awesome and stuff like that. And then they get signed to the big label and, and I hear people's going, Oh man, they're, they're sellouts, they're corporate sellouts, things like that. Um, you are kind of that, and we're kind of yeah, that. Yeah, welcome to the club. Yeah, I mean, did you get a lot of that, oh man, you went corporate, and, and was did you have to deal with any of that shit, and how did you respond? Um, let's see. I, I went into this, well, first of all, I have to say, I met Green Day in the bus terminal at, <laughs> at um, Victoria Station. We talked for a little while. They were like, yeah, we're going to play this festival in Reading. You should check it out. I was like, all right, I will. Went out, <laughs> saw them play. That was really awesome. Hadn't really worked out who they were at the yeah. time. Um, so that can happen. Um, <laughs> then um, I had no idea of the politics of indie music. I, yeah. I sort of spent the 60s and 70s listening to blues and soul and, and rock. Okay. Turned the music off mid to late seventies and didn't listen again until the nineties and basically missed the eighties. So I would never, never work. I could never survive in a trivia contest of that with that as a topic. (laughs) And when, when we sold the company to Trek, the first broadside I got was from zap who had lived in the punk music politics era through all of that. There's a name I haven't heard for a while. And, and it was just like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. You know, and, and I didn't realize for a while what, what was coming and, and what I had done and was a quick study and realized it and thought, okay, well, I'm, you know, yeah. in that, in, from that point of view, I'm doomed. You know, what I did, I, I wouldn't have changed anything that I did. I would have done the PR a little differently, but, but from that point of view, what I did is the end of the line. Um, and from then on, I've understood how that works. I, it still has no real influence on the real world. It's all kind of that some bullshit thing that that culture has invented to make themselves feel cool and good. Yeah. But whatever, you know, that my daughters have given me this, the same dose, you know, it's like, what was the Mumford and Sons? You know, they were like, <laughs> they were really cool when they were an indie band, Yeah. but they signed to a label and I'm listening to them and my daughters are like, oh yeah, but they're big time now. They're not cool anymore. It's like, all right, I get it. Still listen to him. Yeah, well, and and I guess a lot of the people who might be accusing uh, don't understand that. As we said earlier in the interview, you know, you guys, I wasn't taking a paycheck. Um, I was trying to, you know, keep a roof above my head, and all of a sudden now I'm getting shit for for putting food on the table. Right, and yeah. and, and I understand that from a perspective that is probably a, a, a small facet of what a lot of those people go through but i i do understand it and fuck it i'm doing what i think is best for me not to keep some sort of political um alignment alive well and you also have the ability and as you said they trek came in and gave you at the time state-of-the-art equipment and facilities and the ability to to get these ideas going which you wouldn't have been able to do all by yourself no no way Yeah. yeah That's true. So, okay. I guess we can, we can say that it going corporate, so to speak, is not necessarily going to be a bad thing. Um, 
what keeps you going, man? Uh, you've been doing the, you've been at this for a long time. What what keeps it keeps it fresh? Um, I still like what I do. You know, yeah. the the back to the thing I was telling you about from the from a geek point of view. Yeah. The you know, trying to understand specifically and in great detail what happens at the contact patch of a tire, what constitutes what what's what makes it have traction, what makes it um, have rolling losses? How does it all work D- down to a, a pretty rigorous physics level is like, that's what I'm going to be doing for the next five years. You know, that that's, wow. that's a worthy thing to, to deal with. Um, and bike racing, you know, I, I got on the podium at three peaks cyclocross. Right on, right on. So you are, you're going to be able to get out there and do that. You're, you're finding that time. You're able to get out and ride and it, also be involved. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, I talked to a friend of mine uh, who's raced all his life, and I, I don't really feel like I'm going that much slower. My my lap times at, in a lot of race courses are about the same. Oh. You know, I, I don't have the pop that I had at one point in some circumstances, but I can ride smarter. I can, I, I'm pretty good at lines through corners. And it's like, uh, you know, I don't really get what that means. I, I still get off on it. When I clean a line, some technical line on single track or yeah. get around a corner and feel like I was like on the edge of traction the whole time. I still get a buzz. God. So, um, I, I'm just thinking about, I, I'm putting myself into this reference here and here I'm, I'm trying to get my shit together again. You know, I, I've had up years and down years and, and I, I wish there was a way to maintain that and just kind of constantly stay in that fitness. I guess if I drank less beer, it'd probably help, but uh, that can be difficult. Oh God, it is. <laughs> it is. So you're talking about tires, um, and that's a big focus. Um, is there anything else on the on the company horizon that that you can spill the beans on? Um, you no. Know, again, I, I said, like I said, I was, I've been kind of checked out for the last year, okay. unfortunately, and so I'm actually going to Trek World here in England next week or this week rather, really, um, to see what's what's new. Oh wow. Okay. Okay. So, uh, Santa Cruz, one of my last things, Santa Cruz seems to have been, uh, uh, that wellspring of energy and everything for you for so long. Um, what, what is it about that area that is, that has supported and, and I guess still supports your cycling life? Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that might be too deep. No, it's deep. It's, it's too broad. <laughs> oh, oh, it's too the, broad. Okay. The weather for one yeah um having hung out here in england for a while i'm very much appreciating how awesome the weather is in santa cruz yeah um safe roads um you can do road rides there you're not going to get run down or chances are you're not going to get run down oh god um single track the um the road safety has unfortunately become kind of a an issue for me of of late um single track you know i take people for rides there and I remember some German guys, good friends that were journalists, and they they we rode this one really twisty kind of Star Warsy section, and they're just like, I would like to cut that up, and I would like to fold it into my suitcase, and I would like to bring it home with me, and I would like to have that. It, it, you just yeah. you know that other than poison oak, um, oh yeah, it's about as awesome as it, as it can be. You know, you, there's a little bit of everything and it's all right there. I can, I can ride from my house to the trails. I don't need a car. Um, there's Santa Cruz mountain brewery on the way home. It, you know, it's just like, yeah. it's all there. 
Right on. So, and you, you haven't been able to get back recently, unfortunately. I'm I'm going to be back there in ten days. Oh, you are. Okay. Okay. So it's it, it, the end is in sight. Not really, but it, I get a two month respite. And my girlfriend and I are going back, and we're going to hang out there for two months, and life is going to be better. Right on. Right on. Hey, are there any? You mentioned cars versus bikes. Um, do you, are you involved in any advocacy elements or any causes within the sport and things like that? Or do you have time? Uh, I have, I have interest. I can't hear other than sort of minimally the, um, there's a, there's a situation here that's going on that basically is something that means that it's something that I can't really comment on other than a really general way. Yeah. So, uh, Yes, I will. Yes, I can. Yes, I want to. Yeah. But until there's a, a, a milestone that we pass, I pretty much can't talk about it. All right. No, fair enough. I'm not going to, I'm not going to force you into this, you know, but no, no problem. it's a tease. It's a tease. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it's all good. Well, yeah, it, no, it's not. No, um, shit. It's going to be. Okay. Okay. Good. I mean, bad shit, whatever. Yeah. Right yeah. on. Well, Keith, um, you know, I, I took me a couple tries for us to kind of make this happen and took us a couple tries to make this happen. But I, I, I'm really glad I got a chance to talk with you and, and get that, that insight into going from great ideas to actually being able to incorporate them and, and, and doing that. And it seems like you've mastered that skill. Well, yeah, to the guys who have instincts along those lines and want to go with it, Think long and hard about that. That's the one, that and figuring out a way to make a living. Those are the two things that are not fun, but you got to get it worked out. And those are the, the sort of keys to, to making it happen. I believe we have our outro quote. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate your time. No problem. Anytime. So there you go. Keith Bontrager, cool guy. Did I mention that I had a tough time figuring out how to pronounce his name? I've had, a, I've had several um, interviews since this change in which I've been going, shit, how do you do that? Ryan Trebon, Trebon, Trebon. I didn't know for sure. Yeah, I've been following him, but I mean, when you read about people, you don't necessarily get the pronunciations right. Who else? Ivan Dominguez, Ivan Dominguez. He referred to himself as Ivan. I thought it was Ivan Dominguez. Keith. Uh, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure there were a couple more that I couldn't forget. I, and I had to look them up because I did. The last thing you want to do is start an interview with somebody and fuck up their last name. You know, I've been reading about Keith and, and what he's been doing forever, but you never really hear somebody say his name unless it's Phil and Paul in a race talking about the teams. And let's be honest, I don't know for sure if Phil knows what he's talking about sometimes anymore. I don't know. So it, I was nervous about that. And so you, you can almost hear it in the intro when I'm when I'm introducing him and I'm going, okay, here we go. I'm just going to roll through it. Nope, I get it. And he didn't say anything and he didn't go, dude, you, you don't even know my last name. Click. So it, it was really cool talking to him and I hope you guys got that out of it. And he's, what a cool guy, just going strong and, and what, a, what an awesome life. What an awesome life. Just creating and having the comfort and the confidence to create like that really cool to talk with him i hope you guys got something out of it you know what i forgot to do before the interview too was to mention uh the feed ironically because i was talking about food and i did mention the feed a little bit too but um if you guys go to the pack filler 
webpage, click on that feed. You get a free bottle, Camelback bottle, uh, with every purchase of Scratch Labs One Pound Hydration. I think I'm going to give that a try too because I've had it before. I've had their samples before and that shit's good. And so I'm going to have to look at the label and read up on everything because now I'm all paranoid about food. Jesus. You guys, um, I'm going to take a week off while I'm in Leadville. I might post some short updates, but um, we're doing two shows this week. Next show will hopefully be out in the next day or two. But um, I guess that's it. We will talk to you guys hopefully after I return from Leadville without going into some sort of uh, pulmonary edema. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.